Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Quorum Sense podcast. I'm your host, John O'Frew, and today I'm joined with a very special guest. A lot of you will know this person, uh, Mr. Nick Tucker. Good morning, Nick. Hey, morning, Johnny. So for those of you that don't know uh, the name Nick Tucker, so Nick is uh, a big part of the Quorum Sense team. He does a lot of stuff with the website, a lot of stuff with the app. He's a, he's very much a, an integral part of the skeleton that lays underneath is the foundation of the body of Quorum Sense. So feeling really privileged today to have you on, Nick, actually not as Nick from Quorum Sense, but as Nick the farmer. So why don't you just take a minute, Nick, just to introduce yourself to the viewers. Actually, yeah, let's do that. And then I want you to tell me what's getting you excited at the moment. What's getting you like sprung out of bed? So quick introduction, don't rush it. And then what's what's getting you hopping on out of bed with a bit of spring? Yeah, thanks, Johnny. Um, and I'll I, I will give like the, the short potted history because I think it gives some useful context as to you know who I am and where I came from. Is that you know I grew up on a dairy farm in the UK back in the seventies and eighties when seventy cows was a family farm, you know, and I had that opportunity working alongside my father at an early age. All I ever wanted to do was be a farmer, right from the earliest memory. And I can remember back on the previous, uh, our first farm, going out and helping move straw bales when they were as tall as I was on their side. You know, and it's like, it's always been part of my life. So usual thing through agricultural college, back onto the home farm. And I hurt my back and basically couldn't continue. So early 20s, bit of a shift of a pivot ended up going and doing uh, ruminant nutrition research for three years. Uh, and then, so I'd done the degree in agriculture, three years doing ruminant nutrition research, and then kind of fell out of that into the PR and marketing industry that serves the agricultural sector. So it was, I'd realized that I didn't want to be super, super specialized in ruminant nutrition anymore. I had much wider interest. You know, I love machinery and driving combines and, you know, all sorts of other aspects of farming. So that led me into that industry. And it was really a case of there were agencies full of marketing and advertising people serving the agricultural supply sector, but they didn't understand agriculture. And so I came in as kind of like the bridge. And it was a really interesting space because, you know, I'd been at college with the people who I was then dealing with as a sales rep and the technical people at the companies. I was a farmer, I'd read all the magazines, so I knew what it was like to read in England, the Farmer's Weekly, your Farmer's Guardian. And I, through the research, I'd done a lot of writing and, and um, honed those writing skills. So a few things came together. And I did that for, or started in the mid-90s. I uh, had a short break doing farm business management for ADAS in the UK, around 2000. Went off on my own in early 2000s. And was doing the PR and marketing for another 15 years um, before. Yeah, so in the middle of that, came to New Zealand in 2005, carried on doing marketing and PR. That was what sort of took over and was really niched down in that animal nutrition space using that um, experience I had. So, you know, just to give a sense is in that 15 years, I wrote over a thousand articles that were published, ghostwriting for people. And they were published North, South America, Asia, um, translated into all sorts of languages, Europe, 
um and then was also doing work in new zealand and australia so you know that that nutrition stuff is really at the core of kind of what really interests me in agriculture um but then you know over time other things have caught my attention and then and i think what one of the interesting things is is the pivot to and like doing work that's better for the people and the planet you know if you want to take a broad broad picture kind of happened around 2018 2019 where i was getting interested in permaculture we had a lifestyle block and i was working for these companies that were really focused in on the intensive agricultural system and it got to a point where you know although it was a really nice income and ticking along well something had to shift and so that started the journey to how do I find work that brings my skills into something that's more meaningful and middle of that transition lockdown came along and wiped out 80% of my income for a period of time and then kind of fell out of the lockdown into an opportunity with Cormsense and have been doing a wider than just marketing and comps you know really looking into some of that digital stuff so yeah, including you know supporting the podcast yeah and 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 what part of this time frame did you um because i'm really fascinated in your kind of although you're deep rooted in an upbringing in agriculture and farming and you know rolling out bales and all that you know uh, physical stuff you did spend a lot of what it sounds like your journey in a in an urban setting and then now like for the audience, just explain um, the last shift, um, which landed you where you are now, which is very much the opposite of of urban. In fact, I've been to Nick's place, and uh, the amount of gates you've got to open to get to Nick's house is a bit of—you <laughs> sort of feel like you're driving into into the the center of what was the 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 movie, the hunt for the wilder people when they're out in the bush. You sort of feel like that's Nick's place, just tucked away in the in the middle of the bush. Um, so how did you get there from from being sort of more or less a, a fairly urban kind of a centered um, fella with your with your family? Yeah, and yeah, it's one of those spaces where it feels more isolated than it actually is, which is kind of a neat trick. Um, and we'd had um, a rented lifestyle block for about nine years or so, I suppose. And there came the realization as as my stepchildren were getting towards the end of, of school, that actually, you know, I mean, it'd been 10 years in the planning is, is like, we want to get, you know, off grid, we want to have growing our own food, we want to have our own space, we want to have our own land. We were in rented uh, accommodations, as I said. So there were two things that lined up. One was realizing that the way to get to our own land was actually to go and buy a house in town, because we needed to get on that property ladder because all the time we were off in renting, prices were still rising. So we did that. And it also coincided with uh, our youngest at high school and doing a lot more in town. So rather than driving in and out all the time, we were five minutes from the school. We really focused in on buying a place that was, I mean, we were literally five minutes walk from the centre of Palmerston North, right in the heart of town. And we were there for four years. And so we we swapped a, a townhouse, you know, three-bedroom townhouse for... 160 acres in Northland with a 50 square meter off-grid cabin. Uh, three years later, we still have no running hot water in the cabin. We've got a shower and a shed. 
toilets in a shed outside. We moved in and there was a two inch gap between the roof and the walls because it was just a place the owner had put up for week coming for weekends. So yeah, it's it, a really big shift. But what we were able to do because of the way the housing market has shifted is we're able to take pretty much the same level of borrowings and then and, and swap. So, you know, at the time our home loan payments turned into our farm loan payments, roughly the same amount every month. And, you know, we kind of gave up the luxuries of a townhouse to have the land and the space. And um, it's a pretty awesome spot for sure. And, you know, let's just address the what I can feel many listeners' minds are going is like, okay, who dragged who into that spot? <laughs> and and like what what has it been, how has it been for the family you know moving into a a wee place that was just a a, a dwelling that um that someone used on occasion to uh, you know how how has that been for your family uh this many years on it definitely is a, it was a joint decision between myself and my partner Josephine it was always going to happen once the kids left home so it was really going to come down to the two of us and the dog and the cat and we weren't looking for 160 acres. We were we were looking for somewhere where good sunshine hours, good rainfall. How can we find a space where we could actually spend more time living outside, less time hunkered down indoors? And Northland, after, I mean, it was it was six, seven, eight, nine years of looking at different spaces and and places, and look, we'd go and drive around Hawkes Bay or the Wairarapa and other places. Uh, Northlands appealed and it was one of those things where we came up to look at some properties and something was calling to me we looked at a property down the road and it was you know a fraction of the size for you know way too much money uh, and I was we were driving along and I said I just want to go and see that space place we've seen it on trade me looks a bit rough but I want to go and see it and we both turned up and knew it was just a magical spot you know and it was yeah, you know, the the driveway is one point three kilometers long. Um, it's reasonably rough. We are tucked down about a third way into the property, so yeah, it's a long, narrow property. It's a kilometer and a half long, about four hundred meters wide. So you get a real sense of of space, even though it's only uh, that's only one hundred sixty acres. One hundred sixty acres is is definitely bigger than the ten we all were on uh, before doing lifestyle stuff. And let's. And I hope I'm not interrupting here, but I really want to come back to what you just said. Only 160 acres. Yeah. And that's really interesting. What's that all about? Well, because I grew up on a farm that was 70 acres. So for me, there's that real shift of I'm not a real farmer because I haven't got enough land to be making my living from from the farm. You know, it's... uh, is it a lifestyle block? You know, there's, there's kind of there's there's similar sized properties in this area are being pitched really as as almost lifestyle blocks. So, I think it's an interesting sort of what do you say? It's kind of a result of that always always sort of shifting. Everything has to get bigger. Farms have to amalgamate. You've got to get more numbers. You've got to get higher stocking rates. You've got to get you know the margins are dwindling. So the only solution is to really go and produce more units and that means more area less people lower costs you know and i and i that's what i feel when i say it's only 160 acres i feel like we're not a farm 
you know, we could probably run, I think the previous guy ran 40 to 60 uh, suckler cows here, producing wieners for sale at the end of the year. And he had another farm. And I definitely understand that that kind of, uh, hope you can't hear baby Harrison in the background there. Just close these doors. Cool. Um, I definitely understand that concept because it's just a concept of oh, I'm only because man, I you know I've traveled the country and a lot, and you know I, I do see it as a huge limitation. This this idea that a small farm can't be profitable. Um, I know lots of farmers on a lot less area than you, creaming it on a dollars per hectare return level. You know, and uh, and I just wanted to come back and at least acknowledge and get people, and you know, including yourself, and you and I have had these conversations. That's so not new to us, but for the listeners, you know, just the impact of that of that relationship to your farm as being only small. So I'm only, you know, I, I wouldn't mind beating. We we have some kind of reference to that to the to ourselves. Do you know what I mean? For sure, and and I recognise it's uh, you know it's a it's a pattern and a, and a way of thinking. You know, I picked up. I, I remember back to when I was doing the farm business consultancy with ADAS, we were doing lots of reviews of farms, and they would collate all the data and pull out findings. And when they were trying to map profitability against factors, it was never size. It was always management. It was always how are you managing your farm that was the key indicator as to size so yeah i mean i i appreciate the challenge and it's interesting to have it picked up when it just falls into my language you know and isn't that the way for for so many things oh um, totally you know and and it's like um i operate here and people are doing things differently you know we are taking our very first tiny steps towards farming in a different way that is less damaging, less extractive, easier. And, you know, our dream is that in a few years, we can arc round to a point whereby there is meaningful income from the farm. Uh, and, I, and I was reflecting on this earlier in that, you know, we, we have a period at the moment where people take, there's no income coming from the farm. And I can talk a little bit more about what's happening on the farm. But I try and see it as an investment. So, we're not investing in machinery. We're not investing in reseeding. We're not investing in other things that could change our system. We're investing in time. And that's not because I'm clever or know better than anyone else. It's because we don't have any money to do anything else. In this case of, okay, we can invest in time. We can keep this running kind of on the same budget as we would have to use to run a house. And what actually can we do where it's the the biggest resource we have is patience and and almost enforced patience to say hey you know you've only got eight cows at the moment so there's only so much you can do but you can sit and watch the paddocks that haven't got any animals animals in them for eight months and see what happens see what turns up see what grows uh haven't yet dug a hole though so that just gives you an indication it's like i'm a long way from being a uh, what I would class as a as a practitioner 
of regenerative agriculture. I'm a interested uh, interested and on the first steps of my journey. Oh man, there's there's two things there I want to dive into, and I'll the first one for me is is it possible for people who are in the cities who have a yearning to be perhaps less I'll just say it how I see it, less crammed in, less uh like into space, uh less um kind of urban, but perhaps they don't have like you're lucky you had an upbringing and you had actually lux another concept. It's not let's not say it was luck, but you you were fortunate to have an upbringing in agriculture to do a few degrees in in relevant fields um to give you some background. Do you think, given your journey so far, it's possible for someone to come in from an urban setting with no background in agriculture and go farming? Yes, and I think it's happening. Um, yeah. you know we have we have neighbors who have a slightly bigger block than us, and it is probably three quarters bush, which is fine, but it's got at least twenty plus hectares of grassland at the front. They're straight out of Wellington. and no farming experience at all. And it's 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 been you know a steep learning curve, but they're doing it. You know, we know of I know there's a a chap fairly local to here, um, you know, who yeah came out of Auckland, bought a farm, and he's running it in a way. So it's happening, and, and you know, I often reflect or have reflected recently is there's an assumption that the shift to if we want to call it regenerative for the sake of it today to make it easy, you know. The shift to regenerative agriculture is going to come from farmers changing the way they farm. I think a significant or a substantial chunk of that is going to come from people outside farming who are choosing to say, I've made lots of money. I've got the possibility. I want to actually have an impact. I'm going to go and find, buy a farm. I might run it myself. I might put someone else in to run it. Um, you look at Jake Heron's situation you now where he is running a farm that's been bought by somebody who's a non-farmer, you know, there are pots and pots of money out there not in farming. And there's that real, I get a real sense that people are in a lot of situations wanting to do something and have an impact. And it feels like buying a piece of land and then changing how it's farmed and changing how food is produced is, is, is a really appealing thing for those, um, you know, with the resources and the wherewithal to do it. Yeah. You can have a meaningful impact, so I, I see that as a, as a very real possibility, and I wonder what the opportunity is for people to come in and support that. You know, it's, it's like um, you know we've talked before about you know I haven't dug a hole. The soil doesn't yet excite me in that way that has me out there digging a hole every month and looking at it, and going wow. But the people side of regeneration and how people operate and work and relate that really gets me fired up but it's hey if there was if, if we'd got money coming in and there was somebody locally who was really excited about the soil and pasture management and other those bits and pieces come on in you know come on in and 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 bring that expertise to my farm and let me see what i can bring to you you know it might be money it might be other things so i i yeah i, I think there's different ways to operate this than just every farm is an island and you have to do it all yourself. And I, I know there's cooperation and a little bit that happens, but it's, it's 
it's not like the collaboration I saw in the 70s with my family, you know, where four or five farms would each own a piece of the silage making equipment and they'd come together every year to make silage. And there was an understanding that the person who had got silage made first would get the best silage, but that would circulate through the years. You know, there was a real acceptance of the limitations. And over time, I saw things change. So, yeah, we don't all have to be experts in soil. We don't all have to be experts in grazing management. We don't all have to be experts in people management. We don't all have to be experts in marketing. We surely, surely we can share that expertise and say, yeah, I, I don't have to be an island. I can be part of something that is far greater than what I can achieve on my own. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, man, I have been to many, many a field day. And when when city folk feel welcome to participate in something that's heavily rural, like a field day on a farm, I tell you what, the questions that they bring, bring us back to earth. Those of us that have taken this knowledge and this perspective for granted, which we all do, these fresh questions of, a lot of them are like, and why do you do that? And the question's like, oh, shit. I actually don't know why I do that. You know, like, and, and their observations, you know, their observations, like you're, you're saying then, you know, like soil hasn't got you to the point where it's like got you fizzed up that you're out there, you know, <laughs> burying your face in it. But there are other aspects of it that excite you. Now that in a conversation in a room full of farmers would be very refreshing, I would say. You know, and bringing... What yeah. Yeah, what, what, I'm what I'm finding interesting, you know, what I find interesting is as I'm wandering around the paddocks and, you know, just to give an overview, it's we initially leased the farm out for the first six months when we got here back to the previous owner. Nice and simple, didn't have to worry. It was generating... $1,250 a month. It, it, it wasn't even wasn't even paying you know, the interest. And it meant we gave up our freedom to manage the land how we wanted. And in that six months, he lost two cows in some of the deep gullies we've got. And it was a case of, no, that, that's not the way to go. And we had a period where it was just, we're just going to rest it. Um, though anybody who knows Northland Kikuyu, knows that that isn't as simple a uh, an option as perhaps elsewhere in the country because, you know, Kikuyu grows these long stolons that I can tell you after eight months, they can be two metres long and they can go over the bottom wire of your electric fence. And I have spent many, many hours cutting that stuff off. But we have a, you know, what we have is pasture rest for eight months we have a herd of red devons just down the road they come in for the winter start carving here and they're here for probably three or four months and they go around and they stomp it all down and they chew it and half the time it looks like they're trying to eat spaghetti because they're pulling these long stolons up lifting their heads up and what people would call absolute rubbish fodder which is oh, it's two-thirds dead about a third green it's up to my shins um I can't graze it how I want because they get fat. They're, they're putting on too much weight. So we have to graze it a bit tighter, which means the recovery is longer, but it gets that hammering down. Um, and then when we when they're done around, they go back off home up the road and basically it rests for another eight months. You know, the shift has been that we've now 
we're now buying the heifer calves from that herd. So we've got um, some 18-month-old, we've got eight 18-month-old Red Devon heifers, the start of our herd, and we'll be getting another eight when the next batch are weaned. So we're starting to build our herd, you know, slowly. But at the moment, I have 160 acres. Um, that's about, I suppose, 25% of it is bush. Um, and I have eight heifers and one steer. So, you know, we're not we're not doing a whole heap of, of really interesting stuff, um, you know, in terms of intense grazing. But what I am doing is wandering out and I'm going, okay, last year this was cuckoo. There was a little bit of clover turned up. There was some meadow grassy things that went up went to seed. This year I've got a carpet of what looks like a birdfoot, birdfoot trefoil, like a lotus that has appeared from nowhere. We've got bits of plantain. We've got patches of clover. And I'm thinking, okay, how do I graze this lightly so that as much of that can come up and seed as possible? And can I wander around and see? You know, there's a patch which hasn't been grazed for three years now because there's very poor fencing and no water. And at the bottom of it, there was very little grass at all. It was so poor. And I think it was always grazed and the cows are camping off. So the fertility was always being dragged off. But it was this mass of big, rich, vibrant plantain last year. You know, and it's like, oh, that's interesting. Why is that turned up? Why is that? What's what job is that doing? And, you know, we've also seen, again, where we've got knee high kikuyu that's three years old, we're cutting out patches of gorse. Yes, pasting the stumps and there's no regrowth because there's no sunlight getting to the soil and we were doing some gorse cutting the other day on the boundary with a neighbor and doing our side hopped over to do a couple of bits on the other side and I knelt down and the ground was hot and this was six weeks ago month ago because he's got no grass cover the temperature of ground and in the spring yes great to get the ground warming up fast but my mind went through to what's that like in the summer you know, we've got this dense thatch that you're walking on that's there. And people might say, yeah, but your productivity's down. It's like, well, how are you measuring productivity? It's like, in terms of income on into the farm business, I'm better off leaving the farm to rest and going and do contract work like I'm doing with Corton Sense and others. In terms of, how that's just productivity in terms of money. What's in terms of productivity in terms of the health of the soil, in terms of, you know, we've got, you can, you can scrape away the grass and get to the surface of the soil and it is moist and there's worms on the surface. You know, we haven't got a lot of topsoil yet, but we know it's better than grazed down absolutely tight, like everyone is generally trying to do to keep the you down and let other grasses come through. So, you know, again, we're, we're, I'm not trying to say we're clever, but we've kind of been forced into this situation to manage the grassland in a very different way. And... Hey, maybe there's things that people can learn. You know, I was reflecting to you, Johnny, the other day that we're run, running the, the heifers through the paddocks and running them through fairly fast. So it looks like they've they've touched maybe 50% of it, um, but they're not getting much fiber anymore. It's a case of, oh, maybe I should fence off a strip of that rank stuff over the winter. So when I come to spring, I can actually graze them in, in strips and give them some fresh and some some fiber. So it's just, again, it's, I mean, it's, it's trying to look at what you've got, what resources you've got, what limitations there are. It's, it's, we don't, we, we prioritized what money we did have to fence off those gullies and protect the cows from the gullies and the gullies from the cows so they can re start to regenerate into native bush. 
Mm. We chose not to put it into seed. Um, you can't get a tractor off across most of our place. So we, you, you see, you've got you've had your farm basically reseeded anyway mm. because of your your patience. You talked about time. I think this is beautiful. You said I'm not doing anything interesting. I think this is fascinating. You don't have the very common let's uh let's bring an element of humor here. There's a very common disease called cocuriophobia. And uh people are scared of it. And you've not brought that to the situation. You're dealing with the cards you've got on in your hand, which is, you know, building a herd through basically exchange and building your practices as your herd builds, but basically making use with the tools you have. And because of that patience and watching the, because I was about to ask you, what are the things you've chosen? Uh, you've you've seen in the changes, uh, and you you said that beautifully. You saw new plants coming through which you'd never seen before. It's like, do you want to go pay a contract one hundred and seventy dollars a hectare for drilling plus forty fifty dollars a hectare for spraying, uh, or do you just want to let the 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 pastures and soil work it out and bring you something new and fresh and it's it is interesting to see those things and i walked the dog this morning and there's a couple of red clover plants turning up and i was like oh how can, how can i just make sure they're there long enough to seed and do something and what happens um and and for me it's, it's they're all things that i picked up from conversations you just there's a a neighbor at the front who has i think six or seven hectares as, as a smaller block and i remember him saying to me one day when we moved in he said oh yeah you know we didn't have anything on here for two years and like suddenly this light bulb went off in my brain and go oh it's actually okay to not graze this for two years because it was his was now looking like a pasture but he had this thatch of cuckoo underneath that meant that almost whenever, whenever the cows were grazing they were actually grabbing some old fibrous stuff as well because that was in the mix and was always rising to the surface. So it gave me permission to go, okay, maybe I can leave it longer. And, you know, conversations with the local farmer up here, Gary Heyman, um, and, you know, he talked to me and he said, no, no, what species can complement Kikuyu rather than fighting Kikuyu? It's like, oh, note to self, maybe I don't have to fight Kikuyu, maybe I don't have to get rid of it. So I think we we all pick those things up in the little moments where you can then kind of bring them in to your own mix and say, well, what's, what's my version of that? And yes, it's really exciting. The idea I might get a, a multi-species bag of seed and spread it in a corner somewhere and get the cows to trample it in and see what happens. But is that actually at the moment the best use of a few hundred dollars? Actually, it's not. My best use of a few hundred dollars is to do a bit more of the fencing to make moving the livestock easier to make the paddock sizes smaller so that when I am dealing with a herd of eight, then 16, then 24, whatever, small, a smaller herd, I can make, it's, it's more, more regenerative, regenerative for me as a person who's trying to do this part-time than um, kind of spending the money on a, what's the word? Feels like a bit of a gamble at the moment some of those things whereas i know i can put a fence up and i can put a water trough in or i'm using the plasm um, sockets to be able to have a couple of water troughs i can move around and plug in nice and easily 
And it's like, again, those are little things you pick up. Go, oh, I can do it like that. And the fencing I'm putting up, it's fiberglass posts and two poly wires. It's less than a dollar a meter. That's really easy to do. So it's kind of bringing all, those are the tools I'm using at the moment to try and see where does it take us? And, and you know, even the choice of the animals, the Red Devons, the guy who came in, did some digger work on our driveway. His father-in-law had a herd of Red Devons down the road. He saw our grass and said, hey, you should talk to my dad, my father-in-law. Suddenly we've got Red Devons coming every year. And then he's saying, hey, do you want my heifer calves next year? And it's like, suddenly we've got a Red Devon herd. We could have turned up and bought cows when we got here with a little bit of money we had left over. And who knows what choice we would have made. It wouldn't be the choice we're now making. Oh, man. I particularly love what you said there about going out, walking your dog, and, oh, there's some red clover. Like, you know, you talked about how easy it would be to go out, spend some money on seed, and put it out there, and then there's an expectation, and, you know, there's also a risk of, you know, what what grows, what doesn't. Calculus, you know, uh, it's like in that case, you're trying to force an outcome. And, you know, when you're working with Kaikuya, it's like it it takes a bit of pushing around that plant. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it doesn't go down gently. And so here, what you're doing is you're creating an environment that encourages diversity to simply appear rather than trying to force it with with essentially money which is risky and but with no expectation you didn't expect that you didn't expect that red clover to appear and then it appeared like what's it like like oh my god there's red clover here like i really saw it on your face like <laughs> did you spend a bit of time with that plant <laughs> i i definitely appreciated it as i wandered past you know and i'll be uh, appreciating it next time it it, it is it it is like you say. There's a there's a moment of excitement of jo of, of, of joy of discovering. Going, hey, look what turned up. It was like when I found that patch at the bottom of the paddock that was this deep. I can't explain how vibrant this plantain was. It was just like I'd never seen plantain like it. And it's like, wow, this is just really happy here for whatever reason. So, um, and in that is, yeah, what's I suppose you know. What's possible? We, we've been on the farm three years, and there's a lot of things that if we'd made, if we'd had the funds and we'd made the decisions early on, we would have made wrong decisions. I, I know it's an it's a bit of a, a trope around permaculture, as you know, you spend the first year looking and observing, but we've been forced to do that, and there are things we see now that we see very differently. There's approaches we're taking which are very different as a result. Uh, I mean, Kikuyu doesn't like shade. You know, I can see that in how it doesn't go in under the trees. And it's like, okay, so do we need to get trees along every fence line? Is that the way to keep the cuckoo from growing over the fence? You know, what does silver pasture look like in this scenario? Um, one thing I, I really noticed, and it was on a small patch where early in the spring, all the traditional grasses had come up and thrown up seed heads really early. And the kikuyu was looking really unhappy underneath and wasn't really doing much. And yet alongside was a small patch, because this was in the yard, where I'd I'd weed whacked it down. And so the traditional grasses didn't have seed heads and the kikuyu was bright and green and vibrant and really dominating. It was like even, even that little shade 
waving seed heads was enough for the Kikuyu to think to be not so dominant. So it's okay. What can we, what could, if we were to mix something in, what could we mix in that actually grew up tall and fast? And what would that do? So, yeah, so we're, we're learning. And it's definitely a, it's a long game plan. We, I'm mean, mid 50s, I expect to be here for another 40 years. It's not a, we will have this sorted in five or 10 years. It's like, okay, what's the 40 year journey? What's the, what goes beyond that? And, and I can really see this place becoming 50% trees, you know, combination of, Boundaries, gullies, like I say, which we're already shutting off, playing with silver pasture. What what can we do that that protects the ground from that really intense sun and make it drought resilient and hold the moisture and just yeah. It's, there's so many things I think trees, such a big part trees can play, and it's I, and I think this is to me sometimes where. People get confused by what regenerative means, you know, and often call them since we talk about being in the mindset. It's like, yeah, my mindset at the moment is I need to fence off those gullies to protect those and protect the animals. I need to make make it easy for me to manage and I need to work out how this can work where it's doing resting for eight months. It's like the mindset is the same whether I'm doing that or whether I've got a million dollar turnover dairy farm that's you know pumping on the inputs and then trying to it's like what's the what's the window of what's the window of opportunity to change and i think that's where i'm 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 coming at these days is it's going okay i can't do what i thought i needed to do i can't necessarily do what my ego wants to do i can't necessarily tick the boxes that i think somewhere in me makes me regenerative and makes me a farmer but what can what can I do, and kind of be okay with that, which is a journey in itself. Wow, yes, and so in that space of feeling like you need to do something, and it ties in beautifully, like in order to be someone, i.e., regenerative farmer. The what fascinates me there is you go back to the beginning of what you were saying before about around what you're doing, you were doing because you were forced to. I am now interested in whether that's actually force or whether the trying to be a person who does things that that person should do, a, a regenerative farmer, and, and in order to do so, then goes out and borrows money, spends money that he doesn't have. That, to me, is force, looking at it now from this this inquiry with this or this conversation we're having like is that not force yeah i completely agree is is i think often we're not aware of where we are forcing you know we yeah and i think the the resources issue is a really big one um often often it centers around money but um for us at the moment it's also energy it's also motivation it's you know there's a lot of other stuff happening with you know Josephine works full time. I'm working, you know, kind of like two thirds, three quarters time, but then doing the farm stuff. It's like, well, what are those 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 resources you have? And then, if I'm trying to do something that doesn't fit within the resources I have, then I'm forcing. I think you're absolutely right, and it's kind of like as I talk it out, it's so clear. And I think there are times when you can 
it's, it's this balance between risk and opportunity. At times, it's okay to push the boundaries. It's like, um, yeah, a year ago, we went and borrowed some money to buy these cows and then put some money into to about five kilometers of temporary fencing with the fiberglass posts over the winter. And that was to save me walking up and down the hills with you know, 20 kilos of reels and pigtails on my back and a rucksack because we don't have a quad bike. Um, and it was like, okay, that's, 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 that's a bit of forcing, but it feels like it's, it's forcing the level that we know we can sustain and it's got really good long-term payback. What I think happens, and I'd definitely be guilty of this myself, is the forcing becomes habit and the attachment to the outcomes and the attachment to the results becomes the be-all and end-all to the point whereby you actually lose sight of what you're sacrificing and what that forcing is taking. Um, so Fraser came across ages ago, which was, you know, are you stealing from tomorrow? You know, and it's like, or, or don't do more this week than you can recover from this week. And and I think it was particularly true when we had, you know, for people with kids, it's like this thing you're pursuing over here, are you taking away time that you would be spending with your children? You know, I, and I think that's an easier one for people to get their sort of that emotional connection around, but I think it applies to self as well and family. And it's like, if I go and try and force too much on the farm, what am I actually sacrificing? And am I really aware of what that is? You know, what's the awareness? And and yeah, I, I think one of the things you mentioned right at the start, you know, what was exciting me and this ties into that is what really interests me at the moment is, is the complexity of the systems we operate within which means that when we get to forcing, we simply cannot predict what is going to happen because there's too many variables. And I'm really interested, having kind of gone down the rabbit hole of systems thinking and living systems design and, and such in the last year. What happens when we relate to a farm as a complex system and stop trying to treat it as a complicated machine? You know, what happens when I can go to the bank and say, hey, here's my business plan. I can't actually tell you what number of money I'm going to make at the end, but I can say with all these variables, maybe there's a 70% probability that I'm going to hit that number. And the bank goes, we understand that you can't predict a complex system, so that's okay. Um, but what we're going to do is we'll track it. You know, what happens when I graze in a way that doesn't try and you know, measure in absolutes tons of dry matter produced versus what my cows need you know which all it, it includes so many assumptions and we're so dependent on what happens with the weather it's, it's like i'm kind of mixing a whole bunch of stuff up here but i'm i'm really interesting in, in what happens when we take away all of that reductionist mechanistic thinking as being the be all and end all and we go we can't predict any of that how would i run my business you know if i if i really had to appreciate how complex a system i am involved with operates and I, and I don't know if that was clear but there's something there for me that's really interesting that breaks what we currently do and i and i feel if we're not careful we're we're spending a lot of time and effort forcing a regenerative approach into a system that is actually wanting us to relate to it in a different way mm. how do we add that to the five principles of or six of regenerative agriculture you know like this this relation to 
not only our farm ecosystem and our farm business, but also to ourselves. Like you talked about the children being the obvious one. Not many people cannot relate to that. You know, we've all been stuck in that position of work, child balance and but not many of us relate to like everyone talks about oh you know work-life balance rest and blah blah blah. but there's more to looking after yourself than just rest and this that's why like what you're saying there what I really got is like this ability to be critical of our kind of internal dialogue or our ego as well like the ego pulls for like i would say the ego has an addiction to force like in agriculture it's like a it's like a something we're you know especially the men you know we, we oh no you know we, it's like uh we're so hungry for that because well i'll just say from my point of view I definitely, I behaved that way. I lived that way when I was farming as a young lad. And I related to all of my actions that I was doing on farm as an extension of myself. Like it related directly to me. If I wasn't hard slogging, if I wasn't working every single day, you know, sacrifice, sacrifice out on the farm, probably subconsciously, but still intentionally, but subconsciously doing things the hard way so that it gave me this image of like back to the self of being like hard, hard work, hard done by, you know, uh, because if I'm honest, what that did was it allowed me to get away with a lot of stuff, you know, at the house and on the farm, because guess what? I'm too busy. Yeah. And when, when I, in my back in my early 20s and I was faced with not being a farmer which was my entire identity I was good at it I loved doing it I could do it all day every day it's all I wanted to do that was those were those were dark times really dark times for me because they talk about identity my identity was taken away from me because my identity was external in what I did and I would certainly relate to the the hard work the the you know it, it, as long as i'm working hard i've got some value in this world because i can demonstrate how much i'm i'm striving and effort even if the results don't turn up and and i i absolutely agree it's a, it's i wouldn't say it's addictive but it, it's something where it's a comfortable known place i can be in the fight i can be in the hard work i can go and work myself into the ground till I'm physically broken and that's familiar and it kind of like ticks enough boxes that society whatever accepts me um to to be somebody who potentially could have farm 160 acres with maybe just a few hours work a week let's just be aspirational and it's thriving and it's doing amazingly and the money's pouring in I can, as I say it, I can just see, I can hear the judgment from my own pattern saying, yeah, you know, that's just, that's not, that's not the way it should be. You've got to be working hard. And I, and, I, and it's, it's so tied up in stuff. I, I mean, I'll give an exa- another example of the, of the forcing, which I think is, is interesting is I've put these fences up along these gullies and maybe we'll convert them to, you know, post and wire fences at some point. 
it's I, I, I've used this example before, but elsewhere. Once I put that fence up, which I have, I am going to spend the rest of my life fighting nature to maintain that boundary. Trees will fall down. The UV will break down the fiberglass posts. Feral goats will come and get tangled in it. And 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 to me, that's kind of like the, the question, some of the questioning we're missing around how we're currently approaching farming is I'm 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 creating a rod for my own back by putting up that fence. And it's kind of like it's it's me and nature are gonna be head to head trying to maintain that boundary and that barrier for the next for the rest of my life. And you know, the question I don't have an answer to is what does that look like? Which is me and nature working together. And, you know, we've got quite a lot of steep areas that are prone to erosion that really we want fenced off. But my current curiosity is, well, if I'm actually grazing the cows in there infrequently enough and quickly enough, do they actually not even bother going up the hills? Because it's easy to graze, graze the lower bits. Do I actually need to fence them off? If I can manage the grazing in a way that means the cows don't go there, because it's it's it's, it's the secondary grazing they'll go to once they've cleared up the, the bottom. So, I, yeah, I, those are the questions that that I start to to ponder when I am out there just doing what everyone else does. I'm putting up a fence, and I'm having to power it to make it effective as a boundary, and uh, yeah. I wonder what what's going to become clear. What are the opportunities? Um, you know, I can see in our boundary fence that where the the birds have dropped tortora seeds over years, and we've got tortora trees that are maybe 20, 30 years old. When they're really close together, the cows can't come through, even though the boundary fence is virtually falling apart. And it's like that's interesting. What's the mm. version of that I could create? And you know what. What other what other ways are there? You know, I'm I'm totally convinced that farms will look different and be divided up differently and managed differently if we follow if we continue to follow this path of of working with nature, getting systems running, responding to how the animals are interacting with the environment and how we're interacting with the animals. Um, you know, I'd love to run a or experiment. I want to run is kind of get the farm set up so there's a nice sort of flow through the paddocks and it's like great can i set up a bunch of one-way gates and just see what happens with the cows one thing i observed the other day was you know when i moved when the you know the herd of red devons were here i moved them into a paddock and and, and everyone will, will notice know this it's like in small paddocks within another matter of hours the cows have gone and explored every edge you know, because the ground grass was tall, you could see that they trampled it. They'd covered every square meter within a matter of about three or four hours. It's like, that's not natural behavior. Because if we're on a big open plain, they wouldn't have an edge. So the cows are exhibiting a behavior as a result of being confined into a space. So what happens if they're not confined? You know, and, and you know, size of the sort of property you've got with huge, some huge paddocks, it'd be interesting to say, okay, what is a more natural way of these animals moving and can I bring that into my space in a way that means that they're working more how they would naturally work in this environment? Or is the environment so artificial that they can't exhibit their natural behaviours? And what can I do to make it a more 
natural environment for them. Yeah, and or are our animals no longer as natural as they were? But um, yeah, like I, I totally get that. And and that's these are some big questions. As you were speaking around, you know, trying to force an outcome or or what does working with nature or being a force of nature, that's something that came up for me was like, we're talking about the nature of force and then we're talking about being a force of nature um, who wouldn't, you know, want to sort of uh, have all of these things based on uh, grooming the ego, like like knowing that the boundary fence isn't necessarily needed and being in a situation where the priority for you is is on internal fencing, why would you go spend money on a boundary fence that, that really isn't ever having access to animals? Hmm. You know, they don't need to go there. Yeah. And 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 what what does that mean in terms of sort of ongoing farm maintenance? If you think out of 40 years, you know, and say, well, what what and I think this is where, you know, planting up trees on fence lines and bits will be as interesting. But it's also, well, are those fences in the, the, the same place as I would want them in 20 years' time? Um and yeah, we we put boundaries on things because we can we can label them it's like you know there's a patch of bush outside the window here and i can see it and i would draw on a map and i would draw it in the outside and i'd say i want cows out of that which they are it's like but it's still an arbitrary line that i've made based on my limited understanding of what's going on and i know the cows aren't part of that that, that ecosystem and so there becomes a separation between the the grazing ecosystem if you like and the native bush ecosystem I'm curious about what happens at the boundaries. And yeah, do the cows actually want to go in and have a little rest in the trees? There's no grass in there, but like, well, it's interesting that that they do. But the previous owner used to let the cows into a couple of the patches of bush to a lot. And what we've seen in the last three years with the cows out is an explosion of seedlings and what was basically bare ground suddenly coming alive. So there is a there is a balance to be had there. Um, and I think one of the things is is when we make decisions and choices based on almost like the small picture. Um, in the podcast you had with Sam Lang, he talked really um, yeah, eloquently around, you can go so far from observation and then science can come in and actually explain what's happening and, and give you a language for sort of teasing apart the pieces and understanding the puzzle. And that can really help. I think my sense is that where we get ourselves into trouble is when we then make choices just based on the information about the pieces, whereas we need to have that understanding and then we've got to come right back out to the big picture. And for me, the big picture includes how many hours do I have available to work this piece of land? How does this piece of land relate to the neighbouring pieces of land, to the water that flows in, the water flows out, and what are the choices I'm making, you know, with, with all of that minutiae understanding, but with a really, really big picture. So I think often, certainly my whole teaching, you know, as learning as a child was through you know, science at school, agricultural college saying, this is how you feed cows. This is how you, you know, fertilize your pasture. This is what you put on to control fungal diseases. It was that full recipe stuff. And that was, that was it. That was my absolute rule book for how to farm. 
um, for the vast majority of my life. And it's only really been in the last few years where things have come along that have allowed me to relax my grip on that as being the answer. Um, and, you know, I kind of joke is that we, we try to grow some of our own vegetables here and we'd love to grow all our own vegetables. But I'm really crap at growing vegetables without chemicals. I'm just rubbish at it. You know, and it's like, okay, I've just got to accept that I'm really bad at it, but I can see other people who can do it. So it's possible. And there are things I can learn and things I could try. But for me and my ego, that's really hard. Man, that is, yeah. And like you said, I'm really poor at growing vegetables. But, and like, this is so relevant, man. You wouldn't believe. Like we're, Ruby and I are having this conversation right now about our spuds. And we're gonna, I'm gonna get the grabber out this afternoon. Go and put a strip in out, out in this paddock here. And I'm gonna rotary hoe it and put the spuds in. It's like, okay, sweet. Uh, my experience with growing spuds is I just put them in the ground, let them do their thing. I wouldn't generally even mold the the molds up. I, you know, people put straw on all that sort of stuff. I kind of just let it do its thing. And I go out there and I dig up the spuds and I get, you know, shawls of four, five, six spuds, not massive spuds. And, I, and I'm like proud of that. And then Ruby comes out and digs up a shawl beside me and was like, oh, oh my God, this is crap. Four or five <laughs> shawl, four or five on a shawl. Nah, we can't be doing this. You know, and, and she's used to going out <laughs> in her family and putting a handful of super down with each spud because it gets this result. And it's like, I could sit there thinking I'm crap at growing spuds, but my spuds just look different and they'll taste different. You know what I mean? This is so fascinating. Mm. And, and I also want to, before I want to, I want to go into um, a couple of things uh, shortly around your kind of um, the way you live your life and, and, and the way that you can bring an in income, because I think diversity of income on a farm right now is really, really powerful. Um, so I'd love to talk more about that. Um. But uh, what's it like running a farm off-grid? I would say it's it's easier than I would have expected. Um, we're fortunate that we have a really good spring on the property. So water runs down to a ram pump, goes up to a tank, the gravity feeds, troughs across the entire farm, which is really, really cool. Um, we've got a three kilowatt solar system we installed when we came in um and we've got yeah, a couple of generators when it's really cloudy that we do have to run because the batteries aren't as as good as they were when they were new but i would say the, the biggest shift has been changing how the electric fencing is run so what i've started to do particularly because that first year they were just all shorting out with a kikuyu that was going over the bottom and of course when i when Electric fence takes very little power out of the system unless it's shorting, and then it starts to draw current. And we get to a point in some dark, cloudy, wet periods in winter where we get, we turn everything off, and we're, we're literally we're either running on the generator, fridge is off overnight, the electric fencing is off for the day, and so so there's two. One is I'm interested in what's a version of electric fencing can actually operate as a boundary when the power's not on, which to me means four or five wires maybe any half of them electric and I'm experimenting with different things. And I've made some bad mistakes where I've put a live wire at the bottom four inches off the ground thinking that will stop the feral goats coming through. And then it's just buried in a in like weeks. 
Um, but the other thing I've done is I'm isolating all the paddocks. So what there is, there's a live feed that runs through a wire across the top of every post. And so I can actually reach to the front of the farm and just turn on just one paddock. And then I can turn that off. And then I can, and so, so it's almost like those are the infrastructure changes that I've made to say, I, I can't be relying on that power because sometimes it has to be turned off. And we are still, unfortunately, nearly completely reliant on electric fencing internally, only two or three wire mostly. Um, in terms of other resources, um, yeah, well, I mean, we don't have a tractor, we don't have a quad bike, we don't have a farm bike. It's for me, it's it's either either I can get our family vehicle, which is a near twenty year old Prado, down a single track in the dry out the back part way, or it's me walking with a rucksack, um, and I have or. Commandeer a neighbour to come and help with some fencing, and he brings his side by side, and we can get to certain places. But yeah, but the main things is I would say power and water, and what we're realising is we have such a surplus of solar power in the summer. We've got electric jug going, we've got an electric hob, we've got electric everything because when the sun's shining, there's there's so much power coming in. Um, and yet, you know, when it's cloudy and it's not, we can tick over overnight at like 100, 150 watts running the fridge and whatever is going on. What we really need is to use the stream that comes past the cabin and get some sort of mini hydro in, because that would be power 24-7. The problem with the solar is in the winter, when the sun's a long way from the earth and we've got short days and it's cloudy, yeah, sometimes middle of the day, we're only bringing in 20, 30 watts. And when we're both on the computers working, we're using... 300 so, so so i mean what's interesting is just how little power you really need so in the evenings we've got a couple of light bulbs that you can adjust the percentage of they're low early they're like five or eight watts and we run them at 10 or 20 percent so it's like minimal power we have candles and you kind of shift your lifestyle around to be really low power but it doesn't feel like we're giving anything up you know we want to do a load of washing we wait until it's sunny you know, or we'll um, wait until we've got stuff in the in the batteries. And so, from a farming point of view, it doesn't actually have much of an impact. Um, and the other thing, you know, you mentioned there was was diversity of income, and and for us, it is um, important. I think the one thing that shifted significantly is the cost of living in the last three years. So the expectation was that Josephine would continue her full time job; she's working remotely. I would work half time and the other half time would be on the farm. But as everyone's experienced, you know, a year ago, our interest rate on our loan doubled. You know, that, that was a significant hit. Food prices have gone, fuel prices have gone up, you know. So we're finding that I need to work two thirds, three quarters, nearly full time sometimes. Um, and that's that's putting a strain on what time there is then to do the maintenance on the farm to keep things moving forwards. It's it, the goal is still to be, you know, producing good quality food for people who are connected to that food. And I see there's a huge potential to really connect people who are consuming the food to the regenerative journey 
we've been part of. You know, um, I know there's a whole bunch of um, hoops to jump through to make that happen, but that would be the aspiration. You know, the idea of doing everything we do, having these amazing animals that aren't the norm, and then just dumping the carcasses into the commodity system just seems a crying shame. So we'll see what evolves over the next few years. And you talk about, you know, like we've talked about the urban people coming into farming situations and lifestyles. And you mentioned, you know, things are tough financially for a lot of people. There's this whole new world now that I've been kind of accidentally exposed to through, you know, creating Quorum Sense and meeting people like yourself, where there is a potential for another income stream to be had kind of off farm without leaving the farm. Like, you know, I would assert that a lot of farmers would think that that's like something that they can't do because a lot of farmers have it that they're not very, you know, technological or what, you know, like I couldn't type or do anything uh, to do with a computer. Like I'm serious. Like I was really illiterate with computers and, um, and now, you know, like I, I do have a complimentary income on the farm by doing work in the office, uh, you know, um, in various forms. So, like, you know, what you're saying is you you can still get everything done on the farm, still have your family commitments met, you know, whatever that is for you, for each person, and there is potential there for depending on your skill set actually creating another income stream uh remotely somehow on farm you know that's it, it varies hugely from person to person and what they have to offer how they feel about it but the the opportunity is there that was it not in the way it wasn't even five years ago um you know we have we have better internet connection via satellite here than we had on fiber in the center of palmerston north um, you know, we have we have control over our own power system. You know, and okay, we have problems with that, but it's not we're not getting the power company turning up and saying, hey, we're just shutting down for the day because we've got to work on the lines, you know. Um and yeah, when I moved to New Zealand in 2005, I continued to work with UK clients and did so for 15 years. Um that that ability to um span distance and it's an opportunity and I, and I wonder what that opportunity is for for people in different situations and I suppose it would just be yeah, explore what that is you know I again I, I'm fortunate that you know I've been full-time farming you know I've milked herds of 400 cows but I've also been full-time in the office and I've worked remotely and I've done all these other things and it's kind of like I, I can pull both in and I can make a mix uh, in a way that probably I don't realize how almost easy that is for me to combine those things um i'm not saying that getting the balance between income work and farm work and family is is easy and i'm a long way from getting that one sorted out but it's possible and it makes us buying this farm and running it this way possible whereas i mentioned before you know what's that window of opportunity And and i look at the neighbor on the other side you know and he's got 80 Angus sucklers. It looks pretty tight grazing wise most of the year round. And and I wonder, you know, 
what's his window of opportunity to make a shift, make a change? You know, it's it's when we're, we're so tightly in those systems that it's easy to say, yeah, but you will save money or yes, the production will be better or yes, it will be easier. But I think it's also still really hard to to make that step into that. This is known. So again, like being in the in the fight, in the in the the forcing way. Like I know the system, and I know it's contracting around me, and it's getting harder and harder. But I know it, and and I don't see what that window of opportunity is, or what creates the window of opportunity. Mm. Um, you know, I, I joked the other day. It's like what what could have the biggest impact on somebody shifting to regenerative agriculture, you know, and is it is it more information or is it a day off a week where someone else comes in and just somehow it's possible for them to have an entire day where they can not be on the farm and they can breathe and meet their own needs and meet the family needs and then to then come back with fresh motivation and inspiration and how I, you know, I get I senses we can, we can focus on the soil and that's really awesome. My sense is if we get the people stuff right, People will naturally care about the soil and nature more, and there's and there's more space. So, um, and, and that also comes from very much from me is I want my life to be more easeful. I'm saying easy, more easeful, bit of joy, happy to get engaged with things where I'm not afraid of hard work and I'm not afraid of of pushing through when I need to. But when it becomes the norm, it's it's very degenerative individually and then for the family and the people around you and then for the environment you're in so um yeah i don't know where we started with that but it, it to me it becomes is what is the what is the opportunity well how do we create the opportunity to shift and be different and for some people that might be income and it might be there's something they can do remotely that's an opportunity that for some people will work and for some people the opportunity is maybe to try and get a bigger margin for what they're doing by going direct to the public. Is that an opportunity for others? It might be collaborating with people doing similar things or even different things that goes, Hey, I don't need all of this. You don't need all of that. What, what can we do that actually we're together, we're stronger together. We're more resilient together. We're thriving more than we were as individuals. What's the opportunity of taking the pressure off my system or our system such that there's less force needed? That's what I yeah. really got. That's that's huge. That's a great question. And it's one I have, have not yet found the answer to, but I, I, I want to be reminded of that often because it's too easy for me to get lost in the in the forcing, in the struggle, in the what I should do, what I must do, what I have to do. And um It's not always a good experience being in that space. We can often feel like we're just keeping our head above water when we are managing to keep our head above water. Um, and I think the other thing I've really noticed of late is just when just that difference in, again, opportunity when when people's sort of fundamental needs are met, whatever that looks like for people, and it's, it, there's all sorts of different flavors of that, the space to sit and consider and imagine and think of possibilities and the energy to go and try things and experiment. When people get onto the edge of, I'm struggling to, to meet my needs, 
all of that opportunity closes down or a lot of it and i think there's a there's a i think a lot of people in farming and out of farming are finding themselves closer to that boundary than in recent years at the moment because lots of pressures coming on particularly in farming and yeah i wonder how we how do we how do we shift like you say the the balance the expectations the way the systems are working way things are interacting such that it creates a chance to reverse that get a little bit of leeway a little bit of space and from that space you can have the energy to innovate and try things and experiment and, and shift but when there is no free play it becomes a survival game and that becomes all all consuming and and it's a repetitive you know because i've been in that situation before where you're you know trying to make this thing work and all, all you've got in that in that situation of kind of reactivity and and operating from fear fear of failure fear of the whole thing collapsing all you've got is relying on what you've already done and what you already know because there ain't no room for newness in there you know and yeah. you're not and, and your 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 brain is not willing to try on anything remotely risky uh because rather than seeing an opportunity all you're going to see is the possible failures and the problems and it's really easy to be judgmental of people in that situation yeah because i could i could turn around and say i i don't have time to go out and do x y or z but the reality is not true at all you know what i what is true for me is that i don't make it a priority and i don't make it a priority because sometimes i just haven't got the energy it's a choice you, know? you made uh, yeah sometimes i get to the end of the day and it's like yep here's an hour and i could go and explore let's pick an example grazing management techniques on the internet or i could actually just watch something really mindless on youtube and chill out for a bit yeah you know, and it's like yes it's a choice and it's easy to say that time i should be spending learning something new or and it's it's not always as easy man yeah. imagine taking the shoulds out of farming just what you said. Yeah, I mean, the shoulds have been a big part of my life. I should be doing this. I should be doing that. I must do this. I have to do this. Because if I don't do this, no one else will do it. All those stories that are just baked in from, you know, decades of of living in systems where that was the way things were done. Yeah, that was where the value comes from. Yeah, we talked about time earlier and what I'm really aware of is how how trained I was to come up with the best solution as quickly as possible and then convince everyone else it was best, as opposed to going, I don't know the answer. I'm curious about what's trying to emerge. And I'm okay sitting in the discomfort of the uncertainty while I wait for that to become clear. And I've love to be comfortable in that way of being because i think that would offer me a whole new window into what's happening on the farm my life how i interact with other people and i can see you just getting present to that possibility like vividly present to it and there's a real mix in me. It's like I can I can feel the peace that comes with that, but 
but I can also fear the, the ego part of me that's scared of letting go of control. You know, that shift from predict and control to sense and respond. Four words, so easy to say, but because of the way most of us have been trained and um, taught how to be and rewarded for things and encouraged to be, it's not an easy shift to make. Certainly not not from my experience, but it's one that I, I'm let's say I'm I'm committed to making the shift, but I have a long long way to go. So you are human. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, no, and, and I uh, yeah. Go ahead. No, you you go. I was just going to say it's it's. Words are easy. Words are particularly easy for someone like myself who's spent 20 years plus crafting words and, and words were my my trade. But there's a reality to it that is not so easy a lot of the time. And I, you know, to me, there's just an acknowledgement for anyone who is looking to change what they do in any aspect of their life and it's like yeah you can force it but it can also come from a different place and if you you're prepared to you know you're able to find that way through it's a beautiful thing to watch people transition from being stuck in forcing to finding a fresh way to approaching life farm family whatever it is growing your own food Man, I'm I meant to be just sitting here, you know, interviewing you, and I'm sitting here on the edge of my seat, having all these light bulbs go off. Nick, thank you so much for your contribution here today. That's and been even cool. what, even what you said about you know the two things you got the two you know you got the side that's I just look at it like little thing little Jono's on my shoulder. One side's like, yeah, no, this is great what you're doing. Um, oh, man, Nixon, this is going to be a great podcast. Da, 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 da. And then on the other side of my shoulder, get back on the farm, Jono. What are you doing inside? <laughs> You've got work to do out there. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. Look, you know, we're all on our own journeys. And, and I think, you know, back to what we said before about, uh, like, what are the opportunities to, we talked about it in the, um, perhaps making another income uh, on farm by doing stuff you know remotely using the internet but maybe just the internet as a place to connect with people like this could be just as powerful yeah yeah it's like um, most of our technologies it can be used for uh, less helpful things or it can be used for really good stuff and I think there's some really good stuff that's coming in around how we connect remotely and now we can connect people who are isolated and yeah the ideal is we'll all be leaning over the fence connecting deeply with our neighbors but that's not the society most of us live in at the moment mm -hmm. so let's connect with those people we can connect with and resonate with and kind of see what grows from there nick Tucker, thank you so much for your time today on the podcast uh I'll get this edited and 
to you for your <laughs> Nick normally does all the work after I've done the recording and the podcast. So you'll see this first time having your own podcast come through. I think it's pretty cool, man. So Nick, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your courage of sharing so authentically. Yeah. Thanks, John. I really appreciate the opportunity. And I, yeah, I, I really want to, you know, step into this knowing that I see myself as somebody who has very little to share, but I just want to, be part of what everyone else is is kind of creating so if that sounds like you out there you're like oh man i'd love to perhaps jump on and and have a go at this quorum sense podcast thing you don't need to have it all figured out you don't need to have all the answers you don't need to be anywhere is what nick's saying so if you or you know someone if it's not yourself that that you think could make a difference yeah this is why we do this Nick and Greer and I. That's why we do this thing, is to to inspire people, to give people a perspective of a different way of operating and doing and being such that your, you know, already existing trajectory is blown out the window and you've got this whole new kind of possibility of the direction of your life going. That sounds heavy, but that to us is the difference that this podcast makes. So if you're interested or have someone that you think would be really cool get in touch with me get in touch with nick actually no nick you've got enough on your plate get in touch with me (laughs) i'll book you in and we'll have a conversation we'll check it out for everyone to listen to it sounds scary but was it scary nick no it's cool just just before we start it's probably scary and then you start and it's like oh yeah thank you so much man thank you johnny